Welcome, action fans, and thanks for joining us for another edition of All 90s Action, All the Time. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Murphy, and in this special Season 2 bonus episode of the podcast, we are looking at 1998's Ronin. Why Ronin, you say? Well, just like last season, we picked the bonus episodes because they have some connection to the main season and are also films we would not cover in one of our main seasons. The connection in this one being that the star of this film, Robert De Niro, starred alongside Stallone together in last week's film, Copland. Anyway, now that's explained, let me introduce my co-host, who, as always, is one-third of the Bloodhound Picks podcast, screenwriter, and a man who knows a thing or two about a good MacGuffin, it's Mr. Craig Draheim. Thank you for having me in. I think after this season, if you don't mind, I'm going to pass out now. <laughs> it's one of the great lines from the film. We'll talk about that more for sure. Now, before we get started, a little bit of background on the movie. Ronin, unusually for an action film, premiered at the Venice Film Festival on September 12th, 1998, before debuting in US cinemas on September 25th, 1998. It was directed by the legendary director John Frankenheimer, whose notable credits include the likes of The Birdman of Alcatraz, The Mercurian Candidate, Black Sunday, Seconds, a whole bunch of other stuff. Although he had been having something of a rough patch uh, throughout, well, basically most of the 80s and 90s, and this was kind of a comeback film for him. The original screenplay was written by J.D. Zeke, who doesn't have very many credits on IMDb, but I did note that he wrote the direct-to-video uh, Steven Seagal effort Pistol Whipped. So there's something for you. Also credited on the screenplay for doing some rewrites is playwright and screenwriter David Mamet, who you may know for the likes of Glengarry Glen Ross, The Untouchables, The Spanish Prisoner, etc., etc. Although he wrote it under a pseudonym, uh, Richard Weiss, and that is because of uh, basically a credit dispute. Uh, he felt that he should have been the top bill writer given the amount of revisions he did, um, but the studio, however, disagreed with him. So he wasn't happy about that, so stuck it under a pseudonym. Review-wise, it currently holds a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb. That's a new series record. 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, based on 66 reviews. 67 on Metacritic, based on 23 reviews. And a 3.5 on Letterboxd. Box office-wise, it was made a rather modest 70. $0.7 million off of a $55 million budget. However, it must be well into the black nowadays because it grew into kind of cult classic over the years. And I feel like it was a bigger hit on video than it was at the box office. That's certainly where I discovered it. I, I got it as on VHS as <laughs> a teen um, and... Um, but hadn't heard of it before. Just picked it up because, like, I really liked Robert De Niro. I was a big Robert De Niro fan and, you know, watched a lot of his movies. And that's what attracted to me. And I knew that, like, John Renault was in it as well. And I'd already seen him in, like, Mission Impossible and Leon. So I was like, oh, right, yeah, this looks cool. I'll pick this up. Um, so what's your relationship to the film, Craig? So I, I know we were right before we started recording was talking about. So I've seen it in 
chunks a ton because for some reason anytime there's i don't know any cable station for some will go through a phase a ronin phase it feels like once a year and yeah but i'll see it in pieces so throughout the years i've seen the whole movie you know many times in pieces but then but i think if i were because i can't remember i think this may be the first time i actually watched it from beginning to end in one sitting so well well like i say obviously because i picked it on video um i've watched it uh, a few times I watched it like um, but I've not watched it in a in a long time because um, obviously kind of in my 20s I kind of sold off like my my VHSs so like um, yeah I've so I, I've not caught it I don't know it's it's got to be at, at least a decade if not like closer to 15 years so it, it was kind of uh, fun re-watching it um, oh. I like uh, and you said that it's kind of funny because it's kind of you said that in the states it kind of pops up in streaming and then kind of disappears and then pops up again and um i watched yeah. it, i watched it here on uh netflix for this rewatch and then at the end of the film it said that it will be going away from netflix on on may the 31st so by the time this episode comes out you will no longer be able to watch ronin on netflix in the uk <laughs> yeah no it's been this kind of weird whole ordeal i guess relationship i've had with ronan where and this has been a few years ongoing where i noticed it where i felt like really watching it i searched for it and it was just absolutely nowhere except uh you know show it'd be like on showtime or whatever with or something i didn't have and then but you couldn't find it anywhere and then for a year or so it's like it was you could find it everywhere. It was on Amazon. It was, you know, Hulu, whatever. You anywhere you wanted to look, it was just there. And then for some reason, anytime I think, oh, I want to go watch Ronan or finally get around to it, then it just leaves again. And same with this time, as I went to watch it, and it was just unavailable anywhere. So I ended up buying the just buying the Blu-ray. Oh well. Um, apparently, the John Frankenheimer um, commentary is pretty good. So like, uh, right, so. You've got you've got that. You've got that. You can check that out if you've not already. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also briefly discussed um, before we started recording this episode that the the way the podcast works is that we go through the plot of the film. So this is your official spoiler warning, by the way, listeners. Official spoiler warning. We talk about the whole movie from beginning to end, all elements of the movie and the plot. We may skip over some scenes because they don't really add up too much in terms of the story, but whatever. We talk about the movie beginning to end. And in the case of this movie, and like in the case of probably other movies as well that we've covered, the plot is not the strongest element of this film. And I sh want to flag up two listeners. I genuinely think this is an excellent film. I really do. I think that um, I Frankenheimer keeps the pace taut. He's, you know, his sense of tension is great. I think the cast are great. I presume a lot of the snappy one-liners come from Mamet. That I think so. Yeah, I think the dialogue is is crisp and uh, you know, like really quotable. A lot of it. Um, I love the. Um, I think the cinematographer's name is Richard Frace. His uh, deep focus cinematography, great. Um, however, 
the the, the plot uh, is unnecessarily convoluted, <laughs> as we will delve into in a way that in a way that doesn't add up or come together at any point. No. And yeah, there, there's there's other things as well. I mean, like in terms of the, the storytelling, some of the storytelling just doesn't doesn't add up to anything. It, much like the central metaphor of the film that kind of doesn't really work, um, which we will we will discuss um, when that bit yeah. comes up. Uh, but I suppose this is one of the the kind of longer efforts that we've covered. Um, clocking in two hours and two minutes although without credits an hour and 56 so we should probably uh, not do what we normally do and uh, go off on massive tangents about other movies and um, how things fit into different genres (laughs) or whatever you know whatever tangent we are on we'll just uh, dive straight into this one so we get get a little title card um, with a little explanation, a little kind of diff- dictionary definition of Ronin, and then we get the title Ronin blazed on the screen, and then we cut into our opening scene. So, where are we at with our opening scene, Craig? We are at a French cafe, or well, it's in a, a French city, and we start with De Niro, who is called Sam which you really never kind of learn his name, but um, you do about he is on these steps and he's kind of just observing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You do learn his name about an hour into the film where he takes a phone call. Somebody comes out of a cafe and goes like, hey, is anybody called Sam? And he's like, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, continue. <laughs> but so he, yeah, he is kind of, looking over this this cafe area and watching people the people come in and out he sees a woman go in and so after a while he finally decides to go in where he he then puts a gun under some like little crates of water or like bottles and things like that right outside the door and he goes inside he's the shop owner is kind of talks about we're almost closed they said can i have just a small drink but i have to use the bathroom first and then he unlocks the door to go outside just to make sure goes into the bathroom and then comes in and has a drink and at that point all of the from what we're learning all the regular kind of civilians are leaving so that you know the people that are remaining are the ones that are going to be the ones that we are following this kind of international group of career criminal like specialists or whatever they may be. They're ex special service, ex kind of secret service people who are now mercenaries. Most of them, it seems to be, I think some of them are just mercenaries, but um, most of them are kind of ex secret service or, or ex military of some sort with i think possible exception of um of vincent in in terms of the the group that is is assembled not the people who who hire the group who are the ira basically um yeah yeah uh so like yeah sam's supposed to be ex cia um stellan skarsgård's character is ex 
KGB. Um, I, I think um, is Spence is who's played by Sean Bean is supposed to be. Well, he claims to be from um, from the SAS, ex SAS, but it turns out probably not so much. Maybe just ex British military, probably got drummed out of the army or whatever. I'm not sure about Larry. He's maybe just a getaway driver. Um, yeah. He I, like he's just maybe a career getaway driver. And the same with Vincent. I, I think he might just be like a, a shady operative who who know has a lot of uh, criminal. Uh, contacts. Yeah. Skellington Skarsgård's character is, oh, this is a confusing element in the film. Skellington Skarsgård's character is Gregor <laughs> or half the time he is because all the naturally English-speaking characters refer to him in a very English way as Gregor but then all of the Russian characters in the film call him Grigor um, to swear, so I, I was like, yeah, uh, had to double check the credits. Like, how is it spelled? Is it G R I G O R? And everybody on the English side is pronouncing it wrong, or G E R G O R? Um, it turns out it is G R E G O R. So he is a, a Gregor, not a Gregor, but um, and I, he's a confusing character as well because apparently he's East German, yeah. Um, and but he worked for the KJB and he has a sometimes Eastern European accent, which would suggest he's not East German but Russian, and a sometimes just Stellan Skarsgård's normal Swedish speaking voice, um, which is yeah, it's confusing. Yeah, well, that's he's the one that I, I have to say with the accent, I think he's a great actor, but reading up on this movie. You know, you hear with Jonathan Price, they're all, you know, um, uh, I can't think of her name right now, the actress that plays Deidre, and they're kind of talking about how they did all of this act, acting coaching of like learning the Northern Ireland accent and all this stuff, and then hearing Stellan Skarsgård, it's like, what is he supposed to be, <laughs> actually? Like, I'm reading what it says he is like on the imdb or in like these facts or you know wikipedia or whatever it is but it's not that i don't know because like i'm sure somebody mentions that he's east german at some point and then i was like why is he xkgb then why didn't he work for the stasi i'm very i don't understand and yeah and like sometimes he is not attempting an accent sometimes he is attempting an accent i i would say that uh, the actress who plays deirdre is natasha uh McKellen, uh, uh, yes. yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Macalon, Macalon, I think it is. And um, yeah, her, I mean, yes, apparently she did a lot of um, work with the dialect coach, but it is a particularly um, ripe uh, Nor Northern Irish accent, um, <laughs> 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 which is as uh, probably not the best representation of a, a northern irish accent that she does throughout the movie kind of like this um which is not actually very much i, yeah. I think this is about as good as an impersonation <laughs> as yeah. she does and that's i mean anybody from northern ireland listening i'm not pretending that this is a good northern irish accent <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, yeah so uh but uh, it's so going back to this scene i would say that the the tension in this scene 
and like the you, you know the John Frankenheimer the director really ramps up the tension in this scene and you're kind of suspicious of all of these characters and there's this really kind of real paranoia feeling and it, it really sets up the movie real well in terms of the kind of paranoia feeling of, of the whole movie. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And it kind of put um, Sam's character in this place. So he's he wants to figure out, you know, who he's working for pretty much the whole time but he's reluctant throughout and I guess it, it's supposed to make it seem more realistic later on or try and be a better, well, I guess it will be spoiled, but um, for what's about to happen and what he is actually trying to do accomplish. But yeah, it's kind of this, um, he doesn't want to go in the truck it kind of it shows that they're already he's already kind of starting to butt heads with them and but he goes on the truck anyways because and he he won't even give the reason why he says well you know why which you know they all assume is for the money but yeah we learn different later on and then we kind of get a scene like one of those class i feel like this was kind of common in the 90s you have one of those kind of classic scenes that are often in well they're often in like heist movies or, or kind of crime movies and stuff like this where we kind of meet the gang and we have like some fun banter and um it's like much like the kind of assembling the group in, in like reservoir dogs or whatever you know like we get a, a scene in a warehouse where like the plan is is told to them and uh, we get some fun bickering and we we get some uh fun between sean bean's character spence and De Niro's character sam of, of there's a bit of a kind of like brits versus yanks kind of uh banter uh back and forth yeah no i agree and it's a lot of fun and you can kind of you really can see the david mamet um scripting in a lot of these opening parts because very little information is actually given I mean, throughout with Sam's character, he gives very little information of who he actually is or why he's there, whatever. Or even from Deidre, you know, it's basically on a, you know what you need to know basis. I'm not going to reveal anymore. And that's kind of how it goes on throughout. But yeah, it it's fun kind of seeing this because they're all trying to almost get a read on him and he'll give these little jokey quips that are they're peppered with like actual knowledge to show that he knows what he's talking about but then you know he'll go in to say how like the interrogation they ask well how'd they finally break you with interrogation and he kind of says oh it's a grasshopper and you know he just talks about that they gave him an alcohol drink or you know there's little jokes like that i think it, yeah, yeah are a lot of fun with it yeah because like one character is like oh my god what's a grasshopper and he's like ah oh, well it's uh you know two parts gin one part creme de menthe you know like <laughs> just lists off the the ingredients of uh, yeah. a cocktail um and there yeah there's some real fun character moments here and you kind of get this sense of sam being this uh very experienced guy of like these these sorts of situations and the way he's kind of testing everybody out it's kind of pushing people's buttons and there's that great scene between him and uh, Gregor Grigor um, <laughs> where he pushes the, the coffee cup over 
and uh, Gregor catches it and then so that kind of signifies to the audience that oh well he's been introduced as the tech guy but obviously he was like field agent as well he's not just the nerdy tech guy after all yeah and it even pops up later on where he talks about how he wants to like be be out there in the field or he wants to do something like it seems like that's not really his place as the tech guy he's just kind of there is it you know which you know we learn more later on but yes oh and yeah i think in sean bean i think works really well in it of kind of this this cocky character where you know he's obviously the younger one out of them that you know thinks he knows it all and but he's obviously the most nervous and then this is where we start to see even though there is a romantic relationship which we'll talk about shoehorned in. This is where we get to see the real kind of relationship start blooming between um, Sam and Vincent, because where Vincent, even though he's kind of this handler or he's getting them all this stuff in France, he seems like he's a, you know, he has a code just like Sam does. Yes, and their bromance is is way more convincing than the actual supposed romance that happens in the movie like i am more convinced that sam has love for vincent than uh well we'll just we'll just say it like it ends up being there's a love story between him and deirdre uh which we can basically skim over but we will talk about it in further detail as those scenes arrive (laughs) but after those two scenes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that are very clear. <laughs> well technically the love story like i feel like the love story is three scenes so we'll yeah. kind of talk <laughs> about yeah. we'll talk about those moments as they arrive and um they're not full scenes they're like part of scenes um but um yes we'll talk about each of those moments as they arrive and then each of them are kind of like oh okay that's a thing that's happening there but we'll move on from the warehouse (laughs) to the the gun sale exchange so they they're basically before they go on the mission they've already got some guns but they need more guns uh so they go to a meeting point uh to get those guns but you know, these things can never, you can't just buy a gun in a movie, apparently. You know, these things got to go sideways. So tell us exactly, Craig, how it goes sideways. So it is um, Sam, Vincent, um, Spencer, and Larry, or Spence and Larry, and they pretty much pull up, and it's this whole kind of next to the river exchange, which we've seen before where the you know one car flashes their high beams and then turns them off and they slowly go towards each other and they get out of the car and so do the other group they're kind of checking the the guns and because Spence apparently is the the weapons expert he decides that he's going to be running it and really nobody else is going to argue with him just let him do it but you can tell that he's nervous and he's shaking and he goes up there and the guy basically opens the trunk he's re- he's looking over all the weapons but all the weapons aren't there so then it's part of oh well part of the deal is some of the weapons will be here but until we get the money then the rest are going to be in this other car with my boss who's 
like waiting the money and in this tunnel you know and so you know obviously sam knows better and that is just a cause for an ambush because apparently as we talked about before recording um that's just what gun runners do they just ambush their potential clients instead of collecting the money and then yeah sam he kind of warns vincent and tries to help him and then he does end up seeing because a boat goes by a sniper and then a big shootout erupts and i mean fortunately the french bad guys are killed and the good guys (laughs) yes our our main characters all make it out but the main protagonist whole kind of gunfight and the useless yeah yeah (laughs) And the useless um, French police officers show up too late, which is a thing I wrote in my notes, actually, is that like French officers in this movie are just never there on time or they're like, oh, yeah. I mean, no threat like, at all. That's absolutely it, it's weird because like this movie is so tense in terms of like the kind of paranoia of like people being double crossed and you know this kind of back and forth between these various terrorist groups who are after this case the central MacGuffin in the film uh but yeah there's there's never any sense of threat from the police at all and that you know they, you never even for a second think that they're going to be caught by the police because like you say they either they either don't turn up or they they turn up right in the last second and you're like where have you been all this time and obviously the characters yeah. act as if there's no threat from the police at all because they do not like um it's not like uh, Mission Impossible. There's no uh, latex masks uh, kind of uh, disguises or anything. There's, there's none of that. They don't hide their identities. Uh, they just like wander around these cities, like whether they're in Paris or Nice or the town of Arles, the three central locations of this film. They just wander about as if they're tourists. Like they, there's no, yeah, they, they don't try and hide themselves at all, uh, despite all the apparent spycraft that, that is being uh, shown in other parts of the movie, there, there's no spycraft going yeah. on in terms of like hiding uh, their location. Yeah, no, exactly. And I actually, I will get into it more throughout, but one of the title instead of Ronan, because you know there is a little bit of issue of having Ronan as the title, which we'll get into, but. I put down as the joke of just calling it innocent bystander because this whole movie has so many scenes where you just watch the you know random people on the street are the ones being shot and no you know the people that are supposed <laughs> to be I guess killed aren't or you know you just see so many kind of innocent people being shot or cars blow up and actually yeah, the be viewing fair. of it. That's almost (laughs) one of the more realistic elements of the movie of like, so you never get a sense like with action, a lot of action movies, you never get like a sense of like real world impact of just like the characters who exist within the movie are the ones who get kind of hurt or whatever. And if a bystander is an innocent bystander, they will of course escape unscathed, a bit like the kind of thing in bond movies 
where if you know like a police car could get run over by a truck and then you would get a shot of the two police officers getting out of that police car and brushing themselves off being like oh well that was a scrape wasn't it you know or <laughs> you know like because innocent people yeah. don't die in a lot of these films uh so so yeah i this this <laughs> this film has a particularly brutal attitude uh to innocent bystanders of just like there's people dying left right and center although again uh kind of conversely to that of kind of being like oh well that kind of shows a more real world impact to this film uh but then you know like if that was true then there would be way more police hunting for them and also there is no media reports yeah. of like all these cities in France that are on fire um, while these characters go through them uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose uh, the semi-realworldness of that is um, blanked out by the complete ridiculousness of it happening in a vacuum that is apparently not reported yeah, exactly. Because even the so there's the shootout and then the car chase where the you know the police are following them for a little bit, but again, it's not they're not close enough to really ever see seem like they're gonna catch them. But that whole thing too, and I give it credit with the car chases because they're not as clean either. Like those car chases are them slamming into stuff. It's like the cars are getting wrecked. Where you know normally in an action movie, like passing through everything and unscathed and so like that too kind of has a sense of realism that they're messy car chases but yeah it just goes with that yeah for sure for sure uh but um yes there's lots of great we'll obviously discuss that way more there's lots of great car stuff um after they get away from the the gun exchange uh, obviously there's there's a bit of a, a kind of car getaway from from Larry, um, despite acting the tough guy. Um, Spence uh, needs them to stop the car so he can get her uh, and be sick. Um, I like I do love the bit but, where Sean Bean is going like, oh, I was a, we had a bit of raspberry jam back there, bit of raspberry jam, eh? Bit of ra-. <laughs> I think he says it like three or four times. Yeah. It's, just a, uh, uh, it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was actually, so while watching it this time, it's like, is that is that just a mammoth or whoever wrote it thing? I was going to ask you if it's, uh, because a bit of raspberry jam is not a phrase we have over in the States. So it's going to be like, is, is that a um, thing? I've I never think heard it's that like, before. You know, I believe it's Cockney rhyming. Yeah, I believe it's Cockney rhyming, rhyming slang uh, for like a kind of like a tight spot kind of thing. Okay. I know, yeah, the, the notion of being in a jam, but yeah, the bit of raspberry jam was new to me. It's not a phrase here in Scotland either, but I believe it is kind of Cockney rhyming song. Yeah, and then so we get back to the warehouse where basically yeah, Spence is given up or that he's, you know, Sam knows he's not who he says he is and he even asks him about what was the color of the boat at the the military you know facility he would have he said he was a part of and he doesn't know how to answer it even though it Sam was didn't the, know either. it was the um, it was the boathouse it was the boathouse not the not the boat yes yeah you you, you can go on <laughs> oh okay no problem but yeah so the 
So he puts a cup of coffee and ends up spilling on Spence and kind of catches him off guard. And he's, Sam is able to disarm him and basically say, you know, you, I was able to ambush you with just a cup of coffee because the whole um, lead up to that was Spence saying, okay, well, here's the diagram of where, what we're going to do. And we're going to set up a man here and here, and then we're just going to shoot at the cars, but they're, the two men are basically opposite of each other on the different sides of the street. And so Sam is saying, so we're gonna go into this ambush and you're going to have us shooting directly at each other. And yeah, he, he could just tell completely that Spence is not who he says he is. And then you kind of learn, but not fully what you were talking about prior where Spence was probably, um, British military, but he was just kind of regular military and lied to get into this group to get you know more money. Yeah, and yeah, this put oh, I will the um kind of outline uh how much money they're getting paid initially. So like when Deirdre first tells him about the plan, says he's getting paid five grand a week for for four weeks, which is like twenty grand. Which twenty grand's a lot of money, but like twenty grand's not that much mm-hmm. money when you're considering what they're doing, like the high stakes of what they're doing. It doesn't doesn't seem like that much money. Yeah. Or then, like uh, Sam gets it up to like like a hundred thousand. Yeah, because he knows that they're it's going to be a bigger ordeal and that they're messing with something kind of beyond the amount of people that they have and what their capacity are. So he says he wants a hundred grand up front and a hundred grand after the fact, but you know, he's a nice enough guy because he has a code. So he says he wants the hundred so that everybody deserves to have the hundred grand. <laughs> Which you think would, there would be a longer negotiation process, but basically Deirdre phones up her boss and it's just like, yep, that's okay now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and um yeah this is when spence is so spence is basically he's just let go and told to not forget about them or but try and contact them again because they won't forget about him and so you know he is, and then they say you can leave after after we're gone but i know that whole bit it kind of i'm not sure it kind of go i don't know where i'm going with it right now i had a brain fart but it I know, um, yeah, oh, dang it. I forgot where I was going with that whole bit. But yeah, so Spence is basically like, go, oh, um, that's why I was reading. So reading up on it, mm-hmm. um, I know John Frankenheimer, he talked about Spence was either supposed to die or he was supposed to be arrested by the police. So I think there was some of a, that they didn't know exactly what to do with Spence originally because it was yeah kind of seems like it was a work in progress with that character there's a few moments like that that, and there's a few character decisions that were kind of made at the last minute it seems with um with the film for sure there's one much later on um like right at the end but uh yeah yeah I, i you know i read the same thing about uh possibly spends being like killed off or arrested or, or something um but he just gets to walk out the movie which is unusual because you'd think oh this is sean bean he's obviously going to get murdered but no he just gets to walk out the film 
And I had actually misremembered so, this what, movie. What I'm realizing, actually, as we're talking about this, more than... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, how so? Oh, just in terms of, like, I, I thought Sean Bean did actually die. Um, just because, like, um, that's just the association in my head, I suppose. I just automatically made that assumption of, like, doesn't Sean Bean die in this? No, it turns <laughs> out he does not. Yeah, no, I did too. Yeah, and I thought, as we were talking about before recording, that he was a villain for... For some reason in my head i was like oh he's working with gregor they're they're just in it together but no he's just yeah kind of this young kid who gets booted <laughs> that's it yeah, yeah but what i was saying is i realizing talking about this film over the ones we've talked about prior is there is so much um, plot and this is kind of what we're getting into of like you know normally in these episodes it seems like we talk about very briefly oh this happens and then our reaction where this seems like it's like okay so this character is doing this thing and sam is now negating that and this one is now kind of double crossing them here but he's not and it's just so for those of listening they get to kind of see the process of this film if you haven't watched it yet yeah for sure um like because yes we, we kind of have to go into a little bit more detail of what the because a lot of the films we talk about like we're kind of breaking down like action sequences and stuff as opposed to strictly the plots because often the plot's quite perfunctory um but in in this one it's just like uh it's like a maze of things happening and people double crossing each other all the time um so we have to kind of deal with that yeah yeah so at this particular juncture in the movie basically they move after this yeah yeah oh you go (laughs) so this particular juncture in the movie they cut to nice and then there's more kind of planning in the dingy hotel room where there's there's lots of kind of planning scenes like you know any kind of classic in a heist movie uh, so there's a bunch of them we've already had one in the the warehouse and now here's one in the hotel room and um yeah and then there's a kind of couple of uh, kind of scoping out scenes there's one where sam takes deirdre to a hotel where the yeah, I don't know, quote unquote bad guys the other set of terrorists uh, the the russian mob are going to be there um he does some kind of spy tricks uh to get some good uh photos of them and then there's like uh, another um kind of scoping out scene which has um sam and deirdre in a car uh, looking onto the hotel uh with through you know the hotel that the russian mob are staying in and this is where the love story starts because the um, it, first of all, a car goes by and Sam is like, oh, pretend we're all looking, we're, we're both looking at a map. And then a police car goes by and um, Sam snogs Deirdre uh, just to distract the police, you know, so it's like kind of like move on, nothing, nothing to see here apart from just a loving couple. Um, and then, but this impresses Deirdre so much that uh, she, uh, well, as soon as they, they stop kissing because the police car goes by, she um, comes on to uh, Sam. 
Um, and then it's like, oh, okay. There, there was an attraction there all along that we didn't really pick up on. Yeah, yeah because, you know, through besides this point, they've kind of been butting heads. And after this point, they're kind of butting heads <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> but um, in a way that it's not like butting heads. It doesn't feel like that in an attraction way. It just feels like, you know, she's he's trying to figure out the what's really happening and she's not giving all the information to it but yeah this is kind of shows sam is he even though he was ex-cia he's kind of an awful with spy tactics and we're you know you're talking about prior um them just walking around and the cops thinking nothing of it i mean this hotel bit they're just sitting there awkwardly they're you know if there are these highly trained bodyguards on this um, for this guy with the case, you would think that they would have caught on or, you know, he's doing the thing with like taking the pictures and all that. And nobody's thinking anything of it. They're sitting across from a villa with all of the, the Russians and all that. And nobody's thinking, Oh, there's this car parked randomly in the middle of nowhere that can see this villa. It's just like all this stuff around that. Yeah, everything's kind of done in broad daylight. It's quite funny. Uh, dear. Uh, but anyway, after, I mean, uh, after that, though, like, um, we kind of, I mean, as much as we can kind of, uh, you know, uh, get kind of stuck on those points of the of the logic points of being like, well, this doesn't really make much sense. It's, it's you know, I don't know. Um, sometimes that all gets eradicated because sometimes a fun action scene happens not long after that and that's exactly what happens yes long after this because fun action times just around the corner as we get the we well get the kind of we get the the main heist well this yeah this is the this is the heist. there's no really other heist in the movie there's other car chases and stuff but um this this is it and um so we get uh, vincent john renault's character um, he has a little kind of device that can change the traffic lights, so he stops the traffic, and then they're not the most subtle of bunch. Um, Sam just blows up a car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, they're just having this firefight in the middle of, like, there's these cafes and people are being shot up. And, this is central niche smashed into <laughs> tables and yeah but then it gets yeah, yeah and it gets into a i mean it's an interesting it's a fun car chase that whole section yeah i mean like so he yeah there is it is a fun section so he blows up one car and then there is a gunfight and then like we get a kind of series of, of car chases um, so, like, uh, De Niro, uh, like, yeah, Sam and Vincent are in one car, and they chase after another car, and the cra- the craziest, one of the craziest things that I read about um, in the making of this movie is, like, so, you know, Frankenheimer really, really wanted to do kind of everything practical, so there's lots of practical stunt work on this. So, the second car that sam blows up like when he comes out the sunroof with the bazooka like there's somebody in that car 
there's like a yeah. stunt driver in that car when it like Jeez. explodes and flips forward. <laughs> Some of the stunt work in this movie is absolutely nuts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hopefully they got paid a good amount for that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they did. Well, yeah. Hopefully they did. Because, like, yeah, some of the stunt work is absolutely crazy. Um, and then yeah. we kind of cut to, like, we're kind of cutting back and forth. So, like, um, yeah. Sam and Vincent take out the car that me need to take out. And then there is another two cars. And this is where Larry comes in. Now, we've also got um, the, this is, <laughs> yeah, there's many moving pieces we have to deal with in this movie, isn't there? Uh, so Deirdre and Gregor, or Grigor, is there in a van, and he's doing tech stuff, and he's, you know, connected to a satellite, so he can see where all the cars are at, and uh, gives everybody their positions to, of where they need to be, and, you know, what to, what to do. So he tells Larry when to come out on the two cars that he's after. So he takes out one car. He just drives right through it. And then he chases after the target car that has the case in it. And they go on uh, like a really fun car chase. Uh, the, you know, first it's on the road and then it's off the road and in the, in the kind of down this kind of down the side of this hill um, and then they cut back into town and they're driving through the streets of Nice and I think like one of my favourite things in this chase is when they come back into town and um, there is just like a close-up shot of like a bunch of like it cuts away from the cars. There's a close-up shot of like a bunch of fish heads, and you're like, oh, they're gonna drive through a market. That's a fun spot, isn't it? And then it pans back oh, yeah. the cars, and then they drive through the market. Love it. Yeah, and they don't just—it's not just like one car. They have four different cars smashed through that market. Oh, and that is like um, that is the kind of the most Bond moment of the movie because like in the background of the shot, you get the reaction of the market stall owners of like, you know, one's just like holding their, you know, hands on their hips and one is like throwing their hands up in the air and it's just like, ah, classic stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And so they're finally, uh, so Larry's able to get ahead of them because they're going down different alleyways and he then basically smashes into them to get them to stop. So they're able to kind of, they basically just execute all of the people in that car. <laughs> and Absolutely. Gregor's supposed to take the case. Yeah. Oh, we, we should point very, out, we, we should, uh, before which we Which we on, see very clearly. Yeah, but we should uh, point out before we go on with more pot stuff. Like, so Larry... Um, he takes out the target car because of like, yeah, Gregor's instructions and the target car runs into a restaurant and we get more insane practical stunt work as like, (laughs) I saw like the little making off that you can watch on YouTube if you want, just type in making of Ronin and like actual stunt drivers sitting at those restaurant tables that those, that car drives into and they just like jump on top of the bonnet. Oh dear. God bless stunt people. Yeah. yeah. No, they need to be recognized with the Academy Awards. 
And oh, absolutely. Been a big fight for a long time. I mean, yeah. I mean, the stunt people. They, I mean, this is a, absolutely a movie that stunt people need to be recognized because some of the practical stunts in this movie just draw doping. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. After all of that, then comes the the execution of all of the people in the car, and then we see Gregor basically take the case, put it into a bag, and then and he hands. Then the cops are coming, you know, the useless cops, I guess. And so he says, okay, you go on, hurry. And so he hands the case to Sam, the, a different case. And then um, Gregor is kind of nowhere to be seen as a car blows up. And Sam is running to the car, hands the case to Larry, but notices his hands are covered in paint. So he realizes they've been double-crossed. He tells Larry to throw the case and it was a bomb and it blows up a car. And so they just pretty much drive away without the case or anything. Yeah. They don't drive away in that much of a hurry, to be fair, Um, (laughs) which is quite funny. Again, just the uselessness of the police. They're just so confident that the police in this universe are just rubbish. Uh, so they can just go at their own pace. It's fine. And just uh, drive away relatively fast, but not not crazy or anything. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, after they kind of realize they've been betrayed, they then kind of mosey around <laughs> away from the police. And um, they end up driving back to their hotel where now they're trying to figure out how to catch Gregor and Sam happens to know even though he didn't really want to reveal any of this information he kind of says that he can find a way to triangulate Gregor's cell phone so that they can track him and yeah and so that's what they end up going to do is meet up with Sam's contact who tries not to seem like they know each other at first by even when Sam is asking for where's the post office and the guy basically treats him like a stranger until you know the guy gets in the car and they get closer and then he says okay i thought you were gone okay who do you need to who do you need me to find and then yeah so that is kind of the the whole setup for that portion of it of tracking gregor yeah before we get the the scene with uh de niro meeting up with his old uh cia pal um who like again you know there's that fun rapport between sam and vincent where like vincent's like oh who's who's that guy and he's like oh i knew him from high school um so it's just you know like uh kind of fun back and forth uh, which uh kind of comes back there's a callback to that later on in the movie um but before that we get like gregor being real creepy yeah. because he collects his payment uh, for you know for getting the, <laughs> getting the case getting getting the package and because like this is this film's mo that everybody just double crosses everybody as just a matter of course the the guy who he is his, his contact who he, he meets up to give hand off the package to um attempts to kill gregor you know like um because why not? Also, I like this character is just referred to in the credits as Dapper Gent. That's a, that's a fun credit. Um, but Gregor is um, oh. he, yeah. Um, he takes he like basically stops his car 
and takes aim at a random schoolgirl in a playground and um yeah and it's just like well you know like you know imagine what i do to you if i would just um shoot at this uh, random schoolgirl, and just nobody reacts to that like he he shoots the the top of like a kind of um a, a bit of playground equipment anyway and like none of the kids are like holy fuck the, no, nobody reacts to that it's just, it's just a little i suppose like it, i mean it's got a silencer like so maybe it didn't make much of a not I, I don't know anyway um some things in this movie don't make sense so yeah he, he does that it, it's weird as well because yeah. this is the second <laughs> this is the second movie we've talked about the assassins being the other one that a psychotic character just randomly threatens school children <laughs> yeah i don't because it, it's one of those scenes and we've we've talked we talked about it before recording where um you know some of my beliefs um about it are again i i think it's a great movie i love this movie but they're watching it for this podcast like i could see the plot like there's there's too many i don't know in a way there's too much going on that it as we've, we've been discussing it convolutes everything and this is another one of those where i, I get the element that he's selling it to the russians and all of that but then it a part of it also feels like it isn't necessary it's like only there to show that gregor is actually really a bad guy because he's willing to shoot a child type of thing yeah for sure and then like we don't get enough kind of backstory on things of just like we get like just a touch of backstory of like oh he's obviously pissed off these russian mobsters in in some way which leads to many questions it leads to what the main question being like why would gregor do this for the russian mobsters presumably for for the money i guess but then why would the Russian mobsters trust this character who they obviously want to kill? And I, I don't know. Like, there's just, so, it just, at least, uh, there's just a series of questions it leads to. Um, but anyway, that's what happens. And uh, the guy who tries to kill Gregor ends up yeah. dead. Yeah, Gregor hits the accelerator and then slams on the brakes to get the guy to basically be off center with his gun in the car so gregor has enough time to grab his gun and shoot him i mean even in my notes even in my notes that i've made for the film in the episode it sounds convoluted literally in my notes i've written down gregor collecting money for double cross (laughs) and then is nearly double crossed but then kills that guy (laughs) yeah oh dear and that yeah, that whole scene is kind of the movie in a nutshell, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Yeah, it keeps tying, tying itself in knots for very little reason. So uh, so after that, is this is when we get into him them meeting the contact very briefly when they're at the cafe. That's right, yeah. And um, yep. also... Which, yeah, like, I was talking about prior... Yep, keep, you can keep going. Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay, yeah, and then this is where we finally get to learn Sam's name, and you can tell that he was not happy that his name is given, <laughs> because up until this point, he's provided very little information to everybody that he's been working with. Yeah, and it's also at this point that we get, so 
a scene that we didn't mention because it is literally a two-second scene. Uh, there is a scene earlier on in the movie where the character of uh, Seamus, who is played by Jonathan Price, who is like Deirdre's IRA boss, uh, he he appeared and, and like uh, gave her some information, and he now reappears in the movie at this point. Uh, where where they're kind of like um, so the, the the action kind of moves to um, another town. They move away from uh, Nice to a town a place called Arles, and uh, yeah. So again, we're kind of cutting back and forth between a few things. Uh, Gregor is cutting a deal with the Russians and one of the Russian morphsters, uh, Sergei, is trying to convince Gregor that he did not, that was, he didn't have anything to do with that hit. That was just one rogue guy uh, just uh, off his own back decided they wanted to kill Gregor. Gregor's not convinced. Um, Sam and the gang have managed to catch up with Gregor. Um, so then he kind of grabs Gregor. Um, and we also see it, one of the few people who does bother with like disguises and actual kind of sneaking about is the character of Seamus. Uh, I mean, to an extent. To, I mean, to the greatest extent of anybody in this movie. Yeah, meaning that he... Puts on a hat sometimes. <laughs> That's his big disguise. <laughs> oh, yeah, he puts his hat down as well. Puts his head down and the hat down and, you know, like, uh, you know, like, yeah. uh, pretends to be other people. Uh, he, he tries. He, he tries a little, you know, like, yeah. at least he's, he's semi-conscious of, of hiding who he is, um, yeah. you know, because apparently he uh, can't show his face in public for reasons that are undisclosed my look <laughs> that's another title for the that could be for this movie uh, reasons undisclosed <laughs> yeah and then he goes and so he ends up going up to larry and pulling almost the same type of i guess shtick that they would have done to other people of saying acting like a tourist and he's just talking to larry and you kind of know well something's gonna happen even though larry is technically working for him but regardless of that um then we get to a yeah to a point where it's like this kind of fight and shootout between trying to capture gregor the russians and then the team which yeah vincent is about to be killed by these russians the russians that he he knew at some point because of Venice, but you don't necessarily, again, for reasons I'm just <laughs> you don't know <laughs> why, just something must have happened. Yeah. And, sure. yeah, and then finally, Sam, Sam saves him, but is shot in the stomach in the process. And then, um, yeah, Deidre come, runs back to the car, or Gregor run, is able to run away but he gets knocked out by um, Seamus. And then Deidre runs back to the car only to find Seamus in the back with Gregor knocked out. And for some reason, Seamus slit Larry's neck because, and then he just tells her to drive. Yeah. And so. Um, 
again, yeah, so more double crosses for the sake of Sam double crosses. Oh, that this is a thing that we, we before we kind of uh, keep on trucking with the plot. Uh, another thing that we yeah. should uh, point out, you know, because at each point I feel that we need to doff our cap to the stunt work in this movie. So you know how there's a fight between Sam and Gregor yes. at the um, in the kind of Colosseum style arena that is in Arliss, right? So you know yeah. the bit where he uh, Sam kind of like bull rushes him against the um, against the railing and they fall over the railing yeah yeah where they flip over the yeah the where they railing. flip over where they flip over the railing um so like basically in the script what was supposed to happen was that Sam pushes Gregor into the railing and then that's it they do not fall over the railing the fall was an accident so the stunt guys fell over the railing and, and because it was an accident obviously this was a stunt that was not prepared for so they just fall on the steps there is no crash mat that's why it looks so painful is because it, it was a genuine accident that frankenheimer thought looked so good on camera he was like oh we'll keep that Jeez, that's insane but <laughs> that i mean going based off of that and then that also has a ton of stuff with again innocent bystanders where they're just like you see so many people they're tourists like on a on a tour in the stadium are just getting shot at point blank because you know people are basically grabbing these tourists as human shields and there's that guy who gets hit right in the chest and you just see the squib of blood spray out yeah, well, that one's particularly brutal. The guy who gets shot in the gut, yeah, that's it. That looks that looks real nasty. Yeah, yeah, they're like, um, yeah, this this movie has a real reckless abandon for human life. It really does. Yeah, especially for the fact that I guess you know the big reveal of Sam with his honor code and everything. <laughs> kind of like, yeah, it was like such. A huge honor code. You're like definitely let a lot of these of people die. <laughs> yeah, for sure, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah, for for sure, for sure. He's so deep undercover. Um, well, I'll get to that more. Oh, it's more. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, yeah. So they so they drive away. Yeah, like you say, uh, Larry got his throat slit, even though Seamus technically hired them. So like, I I, I don't. I don't know. And there's no reason for that either. Uh, Deirdre even asked him about it later on, and he just like, oh, I'm just clearing up your mess. And you're like, that's not an answer. Like, it really doesn't make sense that you killed this guy. Like, Gregor betrayed you. Why didn't, like, what? <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, double crosses for the sake of double crosses. That's, that's, that's what this movie's all about. Um, but then, so we follow uh, like yeah. Vincent and Sam, They've got to drive away. Sam's got to try and find himself a doctor. There's like a lovely shot, like of the you know before they kind of pan back into like Sam and Vincent's car. It's just like a lovely random shot of the mountains, and like um, that. Obviously, they, they watch some Steven Seagal films because you get that classic eagle call sound as well. Uh, call, you know. And then also like <laughs> this is also the point in the movie where like. There's like this kind of 
Middle Eastern music sting that occasionally happens when Vincent's speaking. Um, and it's the kind of Middle, Middle Eastern music sting that you often hear in kind of action thriller type movies that involve muslim terrorists like it's it's the yeah you, you know it's it's the same it's the same music they play the same music you know it's, 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 the, it's that classic bit of music that's always played um when they're in the mosque just before they're about to uh, do the terrorist attack yeah i don't know why that is yeah no it it just it feels it kind of feels weird i remember taking note of it i'll agree with that yeah the rest of the scores i like the rest of the score it just i just don't feel it fits like that's the, the the middle eastern kind of i don't know where that really came from it doesn't really seem to fit the tone or the movie i don't know <laughs> but yeah um so basically so sam and vincent are trying well vincent is taking sam somewhere to get himself patched up that's better than you know trying to sneak into a doctor's office or a veterinary clinic and like boost supplies and then during that that same time we're also getting where Deidre, Deidre and Seamus are interrogating Gregor and he said that the case is being he mailed it to himself so it will be here you're guessing in a few days but yeah um, which we you, throughout that time you're basically seeing them taking him to the the post office the package isn't there and he's all bruised up and beaten up so he breaks pretty easily for being ex kgb too yeah he absolutely does um i think like it's the scene at um so sam and vincent like you know in their kind of their part of the plot that's happening now they stop off at vincent's friend's house john pierre uh played by veteran uh, french actor michael lonsdale and as also i mentioned uh, before we started uh, recording uh, i think it's worth mentioning that this film has not one not two but three bond villains in it because jonathan price uh, plays the Bond villain in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, who I actually can't remember the name of, but um, he's kind of a, a Rupert Murdoch type. Um, and Sean Bean uh, plays the bad guy in Goldeneye, um, who's like a kind of rogue um, ex-MI6 agent. And uh, Michael Lonsdale in this scene uh, played the um, played the, the bad guy in the 1979 Roger Moore uh, Bond film Moonraker, and he has—I well, I always remember his name because he has one of the best Bond villain names, Hugo Drax. Some Bond knowledge for you yeah. all there. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and he also, in this, brings about <laughs> in this movie, he brings about the only conversation to <laughs> connect it to the title of the film. Yes. So he tells the story of the 47 Ronin and, and you know, he explains what a Ronin is. You know, we got the, the definition at the start of the film, but like he explains further what, what a Ronin is and explains the story of the 47 Ronin. And he talks a lot about the warrior code. And so 
the story of the 47 Ronin is supposed to be like the central metaphor, like a parable for Sam's journey in the film. Even though it turns out that that's not true. No, not at all. Like it's not connected at all. Because like there's supposed to be masterless warriors and then you find out at the end of the movie, well, he's, he's not been a masterless warrior at all. You know, he does follow the warrior code, but like he's actually, no, it doesn't. It doesn't add up. And also, like, he, no. you know, it, it, it's also like this thing, it's weird thing as well, where, like, he gives a speech and you're like, oh, well, this is obviously the central metaphor for the film. And then, like, it has this kind of heavy foreshadowing as, like, oh, obviously Sam is going to die. Spoiler alert. No. No, he does not. Because <laughs> you think it's clever foreshadowing, yeah. but by the end of the movie, you're just like, well, what was that about then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious if there was more connection, if it's either they added the title after the fact, like later on, to make it, I don't know, to give it a different type of feel, or if in the original script, there was more connection to like the Ronin element and the a samurai movie element. I don't know. Like, I feel like, even though actually reading stuff from John Frankenheimer saying that um, the key inspiration for the movie was actually the film uh, The Battle of Algiers, which I, I've not seen, which is, but it's supposed to be one of the best films of all time. Um, but I feel like probably this yeah. is also a film I've not seen, but I, I, I've heard it as an influence. Um, it seems like uh, Le Samurai the Jean-Pierre Melville film was uh, an influence. So like uh, maybe, maybe that kind of connection. And like, I do almost wonder, I know like Jean-Pierre is like a generic French name as well. But I do almost wonder like, you know, was this character named that because of like the Jean-Pierre Melville thing? I don't know. Just the theory. That makes sense because I mean, some of my notes uh, that I didn't get into is like with the, the opening title, of Ronan and the like very bright red some of the blood color with their bright red there's elements in it where you think well maybe it has that kind of connection to like the the samurai movie or whatever because you can see that influence and then it just doesn't utilize it farther than that then it you know it takes on more of like a like a European heist or conspiracy movie or whatever it may be than anything i feel like yeah no i i, I definitely get that and i feel there is almost uh, i don't know like it almost feels like there's more uh, john frankenheimer also directed the french connection too and you do feel like there is yeah. like a strong kind of like french connection style influence as well because it, it feels like one of those it's it's funny because like i feel in some ways this um movie like predicts some some later action movies but it does also because like i feel that this movie um possibly influenced the first born movie because like i feel like that has a similar feel that movie the the first born movie which feels slightly different to um yeah. uh the, you know the, this the second and third in, installments like yeah um but but anyway, it do also has like a very strong throwback feel of like it does feel like an action movie from like the early seventies, which is not surprising given like you know 
you know the, the kind of era Frankenheiner came out of you know it, it's not surprising it has this kind of uh, throwback feel to it and it does feel like that one of those kind of grittier harder edged kind of 70s style action movies in the vein of something like um, The French Connection and also like uh, it also has mm-hmm. a certain feel of something like the, the Day of the Jackal as well which is another m- movie um, set in you know action movie action thriller I suppose uh, set in France and which also stars Michael Lonsdale as, as well uh, in, a, in a supporting role um, so uh, yeah you can see a lot of different kind of influences uh, going on and also in my head I always connect this film uh, to Mission Impossible um, because like they have similar feels to them and they have similar uh, convoluted plots I mean like the original 1996 Mission Impossible movie um, that's that's what I mean not the TV series or the later films yeah maybe also because I saw them both are you know in, in a similar time period as well within like a year mm-hmm. of each other I suppose yeah I yeah I agree with that I can see that so so next how is that so next up we've basically this back and forth where you're seeing them try and get the case with um Deidre, Deidre and um Seamus with Gregor and then it goes into oh know, actually Craig trying Craig? to yeah yeah bef- before we go any further with the plot I do feel we would be remiss if we didn't call back to your initial quote at the, the start of the episode uh, where oh, yeah. like Sam is doing kind of <laughs> self-surgery as he's directing Vincent to get the bullet out of him. And he has like two great lines where Vincent is like, um, are you sure this is kind of going or going to go all right, basically? And Sam was, you know, it says, uh, oh, yeah, you know, I once uh, took out a man's appendix with a, a grapefruit spoon, uh, which is a great line. And then he also has the great line of like, uh, if you don't mind, guys, uh, I think I'm going to pass out, which is the most casual way um, yeah. to say it. <laughs> it's so funny. The way De Niro delivers that line yeah. is, oh, chef's kiss. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it has a lot of great, uh, that scene has a lot of great tension, even though it's kind of quick. And, mm-hmm. you know, where you see uh, Vincent, you know, he's spreading open the bullet wound with one pair of the pliers and grabbing the bullet. And at one point he he grabs it and starts to kind of take it out, but it slips out of the thing. And so then he has to do it again. And, you know, it's really quiet, I think. It, but you can only really see it from the, the mirror in the, that they, yeah, they set up like a mirror to help um, Sam see what's going on. And you see it from that point of view. I think the shots and the, like it adds the element of tension to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Huh. Anyway, I, I suppose we, we better get uh, yeah, back on with it. We still got um, a, a bunch of plot to go, so we we <laughs> we truck we truck on with more double crosses and and stuff. Um, yeah, uh, so like um, yeah. yes, they they go to collect the case. Um, like you say, Gregor kind of gives up pretty easily of just being like, yeah, okay, I'll take you to the post office, and then 
but like uh, Sam and, and Vincent are are hot on their tails, and they are also at the post office. Oh, this is another great line that I really entertained me because again, I, I feel like it kind of sums up the movie as well. Of like, uh, so Sam and Vincent are sitting in the car, and Vincent's like, "Oh, how did you know that there was a, a sniper at the gun exchange?" And um, uh, Sam says, "Like, oh, you know, rule number one that they taught us was uh, when when there when there is any doubt, there is no doubt," which is one of those lines. It's like that sounds cool and philosophical, but then at the same time, you think about it and you're like, "What what does that mean?" Like, like any time you like have yeah. any gut feeling that something isn't quite right, you just assume somebody's going to kill you. Like, what? I, I don't under. I'm, I don't know. And that's why there's so many double crosses. <laughs> they can't work with each other. Yeah, because you just assume a uh, double cross is coming when there is any doubt. <laughs> there is no doubt. Okay, a yeah. motto for life. Yeah. Well, and it has them the second, and then he says, "Well, where did you learn that?" Well, rule number two, you've it's I can't remember. It's basically rule number two. You, I forgot where I learned it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's basically it. Which rule number is two is you forget everything. Around. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is why he's not very good at spycraft because, like, he's forgot. He's deliberately forgotten everything. Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear, but um, so they're able to get up. Sam gets um, basically holds Deidre at gunpoint because she's the new getaway driver, and then Vincent points a gun at Seamus and Gregor. But Deidre knows that Sam isn't going to shoot, so she basically she just hits the accelerator and heads towards Vincent and Vincent dives out of the way which gives time for everybody to get in the car and then you know Vincent has the thing of yelling at Sam of why didn't he just shoot her which you're kind of wondering I mean there's the shoehorn element again well this is love story story moment number two this is love story moment number two of like oh they're clearly so deeply in love that's why Sam can't uh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> well, then it's interesting because by the end, it paints Deirdre as like this unfortunate soul who also had a code. But you're watching this car chase that follows, and so many people are killed because yeah. of her. That is very like, true. How is he just like, yeah, willing to let all this go by the end, especially? Yeah. That is one thing that I want to point out in this movie's favor. Like, for a film made in 1998, um, which I know isn't that long ago, and we think of, you know, like, um, like to think of, you know, not being, you know, further back being not so progressive. But anyway, for a film made at this time, it's relatively progressive in the portrayal of Deirdre, because she is not... viewed by the movie as lesser than because she is a female character it is not really brought up much there's no kind of like sexist banter with the character of like oh like why are you you know handling this or like you know the that would have been typical uh for this time period or, or you know typical for an action movie of of just like 
um, some kind of uh, sexist back and forth, you, you know, where she has to bat off some sexist comments or, or whatever. Um, she's just like treated as just one of the other characters, just like just like the guys. Like there's no there's no real separation there, and that's um, yeah. I think that's it's kind of weirdly progressive for the time. It is, yeah, and I think it does. It plays in a way where I know um, it happened with like Streets of Fire or Alien, or where it's a you know where it feels like it was written well, with the exception of the the love shoehorn scenes yeah yeah that are in the movie it feels like it was written like as like a kind of genderless role like you were saying you know that could have been played by you know any character really or any person yeah 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 and um i think again it's kind of unusual that she is like one of the key plot motivators as well like you know like this car chase that you know happens you know, is, is struck off by by her you know like um and yeah she, like you say it's like this kind of genderless character um that, that could kind of been played by anyone it's not like the typical female character and like i know the kind of love story is kind of shoehorned in but like it doesn't it doesn't take away from her character in the way that, as we've discussed in a lot yeah. of movies previously, where, you know, uh, a female character started off as, uh, you know, like quick-witted and, and uh, you know, courageous and uh, badass and, and, and stuff like that. But, you know, and, and, and clever and, you know, but then slowly gets uh, dumber and, and more useless and, and, and considerably less badass as the running time goes on. Like Deirdre stays kind of the character she is throughout the movie. Like her character makes, you know, has a clear arc of like she never... Uh, changes in a way that doesn't make sense yeah no i agree and i think um yeah and she does for a movie like this it was also there's that potential for her to like end up in, in the like femme fatale role and it doesn't go yeah. that way either which was nice yeah that's that's true uh for for sure yeah they don't like um they don't use her sexuality in any way really um yeah, so yeah, it's a nice change of pace, and um, I think uh, the film deserves kudos for that. Um, but uh, I suppose we should talk about the big car chase. Now, we already had one car chase that could easily be one of the best car chases in any movie of the 90s. Uh, but this car chase is possibly yeah. the best car chase ever put on film and i'm not exaggerating on that literally like you know in the terms of like all-time great car chases obviously the ones that are often brought up are the the one in the original french connection um you know the one in the steve mcqueen movie bullet um this for me is the best car chase i have ever seen in a film so yeah so often the best car chases of all time um the ones that are often considered kind of top of the list are from the original french connection and from the steve mcqueen movie bullet uh but for me personally i think this is uh, the best 
the best car chase I have ever seen in a film. And I have seen both Bullet and uh, The French Connection and a bunch of other action movies with uh, some fine car chases in them. But for me, this is the this is the creme de la creme. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just the um, the just the kind of crazy stunt work in it. I mean, apparently they used three hundred stunt drivers. Yeah. Uh, to do this big car chase that goes right through Paris, it's genuinely insane. There, there's so many kind of high spots throughout the car chase. It is, it's filmed uh, brilliantly. Um, they're like, uh, you know, they go through like a couple of different tunnels. There's like these kind of big pileups. There's like, uh, there's a, there's like a lorry that flips over and explodes and they're weaving in and out of, I think it's like the kind of tight spaces as well. Cause they're like weaving in and out of this traffic. Um, they're driving the wrong way down these kind of, uh, you know, these kind of, obviously, you know, the, the, the roads are smaller. In, in in a European city to like a, a big American highway, which makes it feel more claustrophobic and in, in, in kind of intense and stuff as well. And it's just, um, yeah, it's just real good stuff. Mm-hmm. But then I, I suppose like, uh, yeah, I saw like um, after, uh, I suppose it's kind of unfortunate because like the, the car, the big car chase, the you know, the second car chase that goes through Paris is such an adrenaline rush that the climax of the movie is somewhat anticlimactic. Like, um, you know, like the car chase and certain other scenes in this movie have always been kind of emblazoned in my memory of watching it um, a bunch of times in my teens and early 20s. And then, like, I never quite remember the ending so yeah okay. so this like last section of the film it just gets like a little blurry for me even though I, i've watched this a bunch you know like like i said you know throughout my teens and and, and uh 20s but always kind of it's a bit of a blur at the end of the movie and re-watching it 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 does um i mean we're not quite at the end ends but we're you know at the kind of final section of the film and this uh final section it's it's a bit anticlimactic i i, I suppose although it does have a hilarious bit of uh plot mechanics um when we get uh, sam and vincent in the cafe and i know you really want to take this one craig so take us through that yeah, so they know by this point that, or well, no, so this is when they start to learn it. So basically, they know that Gregor switched the cases, but he didn't have time to go get a specially made case. And they oh, are I suppose made cases, apparently. I, I suppose, Craig, I suppose uh, just quickly, I'll interject that we should say that the car chase ends with the car falling off um, a part of a half-made bridge and uh, that Gregor escapes with the case and uh, Seamus is presumed dead and Deirdre is taken out of the car uh, by uh, some construction workers. Um, So, you know, just uh, in terms of, so people know uh, what's happening in the plot. And then we we cut to, you know, uh, know, Sam and Vincent in this cafe, uh, figuring shit out and, Back to you, Craig. Yeah, yeah. And 
the scene where all these other cars blow up so easily and their car like falls off of a bridge lands and, but yeah anyways we won't get into that logic um so the basically yeah they're sitting there and they're trying to figure out how do they find him now with the case and that okay well he must he switched the cases obviously but these cases aren't just your normal cases so he would have had to have it custom made no he couldn't have had it custom made it would have been too it would have been too long of a process since he was in the hotel the whole time wait a minute there's two little girls <laughs> they're walking by they have cases exactly like the cases that Gregor had, except they're not silver. Well, maybe let's just ask. So then Vincent goes and asks the father, I'm guessing, of the two girls, and then comes back inside. And yeah, they're ice skating cases. And they even ask at one point, how, how would he have went out to buy spray paint or know what the case would have even looked like, which then isn't even explained. It's just... You know, again, like many other things. <laughs> Undisclosed reasons, that, remember? <laughs> yes, yes. The title of the movie, Undisclosed Reasons. But yeah, that's the so that's the first thing of like, oh, okay, we need to start wrapping this movie up and I don't know where to go. So yeah, there's the cases and this is where it's going to go because the plot says so. So then they realize they don't have to actually find Gregor they need to find the Russian. And if they find the Russians, then Gregor will come to them. So they go and they meet a contact of Vincent's who knows, I guess, uh, who's a mechanic and is Russian. So he knows Russians. <laughs> That's the thing. Because he just seems like kind of a regular mechanic working guy who just happens to be Russian. Yes, he doesn't seem like he has like Russian mafia connections um, necessarily. But uh, yeah, so yeah. like Vincent has a contact. Like basically, we yeah, we're, we're it's not really explained. We just cut to this uh, scene with this mechanic. So obviously, Vincent knows a guy who knows a guy. Uh, so he's got the contact who knows the mechanic, who and then they just grill him about kind of oh, is there a lot of guys who've been in the the garage, you know, like throwing money about and like. The way the mechanic plays it is like he literally knows nothing and just wants to get on with his day and doesn't know why these strange men are bothering him. And then he becomes entirely unnecessary to the plot as well because they do not get any information out of him. He just returns to his day uh, taking a phone call from a customer and then the contact of Vincent points out a massive poster for the ice skating show that just so happens to be happening tonight and says like, oh, if you're looking for Russians, uh, you probably should look for them. Uh, I'd look for them right there. And you're like, why didn't you point that poster out before? Like, uh, and if you, you knew the kind of, if you kind of knew the Russian gangsters were going to be at this like ice skating show, then why go through this rigmarole of like taking sam and vincent to this apparent contact non-contact it, it it's funny it's funny that the scene is in the movie but it doesn't make goddamn like a sense yeah yeah i mean it's yeah it's there to just so that they don't have to try and explain i guess to keep it at a two-hour time mark <laughs> is what it feels like like oh 
because the only way to get through this appropriately would be to add like another three or four scenes but we'll just add this one to kind of cover to broadly cover all of our bases to move forward yeah but it moves the point yeah but like, so like a, um, yeah. yeah so there's kind of a quick 10 minutes to to just move the plot forward so we don't have to spend uh, any more time investigating because we gotta be out of here in two hours so fuck you guys <laughs> yeah yeah so then they go to this so again it kind of shifts away for a second from sam and vincent and at, at it's at this ice rink and you see mikhail the armico the kind of russian mob leader mm-hmm. and he's going to sit in the, his seat and then you know sam and vincent are watching him and then he gets word that you know there was uh or there's somebody that wants to meet him and he goes to, uh, yeah, he goes to see the, the person and it happens to be Gregor, even though they were supposed to meet later on. Gregor wants to char- chat now. And Gregor basically gives this whole ultimatum saying, you know, you, got, you have to give me the money. I just want my money and I'll give you this. And then, but if I don't make this phone call in a minute, then I have a sniper who I've worked with many times and she's great and never misses. And she'll shoot your lover and the the figure sta- skater the, the who is a real figure skater two-time so, olympic champion katrina yeah. witt yes and so that's the whole thing and uh, mikhail he pulls the gun on gregor and gregor is trying to like call his bluff and he's counting down saying 45 seconds 30 15 and yeah it just the bluff doesn't work because mcgill um shoots Gregor when he gets to I guess the zero mark and lets his girlfriend get shot anyways just so he can keep the money and the the case I guess and then but during this time Sam and Vincent are trying to get back there because they know and what Sam has to knock out one of the guys and this is where that callback was where um, Vincent was asking a guy about the if there was any Russians there and the guy gives all this information and Sam asks how he knew the guy and Vincent makes the comment about we're old friends from high school. Yeah. Although in this context, I was like, either that is correct and they actually were, or um, he is using it in the same way that Sam used it, which leads me to the question, is Paris just full of ex-mercenaries or ex-secret service people? Like, um, just the whole city is just is full of them? Like, yeah. we just meet so many of them. It's just like, wow, that is, seems like uh, more than, than yeah. you would. But anyway, you know, it's the kind of thing that uh, you can get away with in an action movie. <laughs> yeah exactly well and i feel like vincent's character it work make more sense if it was just somebody from high school because the guy yeah. is is just like a uh you know a security officer or whatever yeah he's just a regular old security guard yeah and vincent for the yeah and vincent for the most part seems i don't know because he's kind of taught stuff throughout by sam or certain things so it really feels like as you're watching it that he's just kind of he's hired to show these mercenaries or whoever around town and to make sure they get all the resources they need but that's primarily it like that he's not you know x whatever yeah 
Yeah, that's a that's, that's a fair point. I did like one weird thing that I think comes out of this scene as well is like so when the ice skater, the the, the character is called Natasha, when she's shot, and then like basically, obviously, we get the classic thing of like everybody in the arena is shocked and people are running out of their chairs and everybody and there's mayhem going on and the police officers are trying to interview people and stuff like that mikhail comes out the dressing room uh, you know the kind of back vip area where he shot gregor and the police try to stop him and then at that point he takes out his passport and says i'm a chilean citizen and i was like what what's yeah. that got to do with anything like does that make you less suspicious like are you pretending not to be russian like what is why why would that make a difference at all? Yeah, yeah. At, at that point, yeah, it doesn't seem like it would matter. It's like, yeah, but he'd still want to question you. It doesn't matter what citizen, it doesn't matter what country you come from. Like, and it's, it also is very random as well, where he's like, you know, he just, you know, looks Russian, has a Russian accent. He's just like, I'm a, I'm a Chilean yeah. citizen. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, like at least it should have had him speaking in the Spanish, or you know, or something. Uh, yeah, I mean, still, it shouldn't make a difference. But at least I don't, I, I don't know, I don't know. Um, what I did there yeah. was I started out with a semi-Russian accent, but then I was just Sean Connery uh, for some reason. I think I, I was just thinking of Hunt for the Red October. Uh, so, so yeah. <laughs> you know, if anybody wants to pick me up on my accent there, yeah, I don't know what happened there. It, it, it started out Russian in my head and just became Sean Connery for some reason. I'm Scottish. I don't know. And so it's obviously some sort of infection. Uh, anyway, we should probably go back to the go back to the plot. Um, yeah, so, so like this is where this is where yeah, Seamus so this is where Seamus reappears. Yeah, and so there you see a police officer consoling a little girl who's crying for her mom because everybody had you know panicked and scattered out, and then Kale um, and I guess his bodyguard are walking, and then the police officer is actually Seamus who has this big burn on his face, and he's shoots both of the men and takes the case and then he basically runs off into the crowd and sam tells vincent to keep track of him because he knows that deidre is going to be somewhere nearby so this is another i guess the final part of the love yes this is love story moment number Uh, three uh the final chapter yeah yeah so he goes up to her in the car and basically says, you need to go. You need to go now, even though you know, she killed all these people, especially with his reveal, why he is so willing to let it happen. And she then says, well, you can come with me. Let's just, you know, does that whole thing of we can both just drop this. We can run off together until he finally admits I'm not here. I was never here for the money. I'm here for Seamus and because I've never, like, I never left. I still, he, you know, finally reveals he's still an undercover CIA agent, which then she just takes off leaving Seamus. And it's kind of a weird, an awkward scene that goes up. So Seamus is running. There's all these cops and the contact for Sam 
sees Seamus, he points him out to the, the cops. They're kind of not really being too hasty about it. They're like, oh, hey, come over here so we can talk to you. Because <laughs> I think we've established the cops are useless in this movie. Are. Yeah, and so and Sam is sitting right next to him and holding him, but yet he never tries to disarm Seamus with the fact that Seamus is still holding a gun and just standing right next to him. So when Seamus turns to shoot um to shoot sam then um vincent quickly jumps on the way and basically takes two in the stomach again and then which yeah the whole that whole setup to me feels it felt weird i think he's um, weird but yeah it's it, it just of, like yeah it's, yeah it, yeah it doesn't it doesn't look quite right um and it, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on and and, and then it can just happens and you're like oh okay yeah all right uh, and then, yeah, uh, so you're, you're right, it's weird. But then, yeah. like, uh, Seamus runs away and Sam gives chase. Yes, and they end up back in the ice rink to which, yeah, he's able to, they're kind of able to confront each other. But Sam is shot in the arm by Seamus. And right before Seamus is going to kill Sam, then Vincent saves the day and shoots Seamus. And then Vincent passes out, I guess. is kind of what you see. <laughs> yes, that is true. And you're kind of like, oh, did he... It's kind of, it's kind of done to kind of make you believe that he's, he's died. He's died in that moment, which he's not. But yeah. he, you know, like, uh, it's kind of... For two, you get two yeah. seconds of suspense of like, oh, no, Vincent has, has died. That, you know, like, um, um, you know, Vincent, Sam's true life partner, not, I mean... The, you know the story with Deirdre is just I mean just a disguise like this this, yeah. is, this is a true relationship of the movie yeah and so then what we get is basically a shot just buildings and you're kind of hearing from BBC worldwide that a peace agreement has been kind of made between Northern Ireland and um, the more well-known Protestant you know Irish government in the south yeah, so and it's th- all this, kind of because of the fact that Seamus has been killed now. This is this is genuinely amazing when it tries to tie into the re- so like um, you know so this movie yeah. came out in 1998, and um, it's real funny when this movie right at the end tries to tie it into the real world, where we find out that Sam and Vincent um, were responsible. Uh, for the Good Friday Agreement, <laughs> which is uh, yeah. the, the Northern Ireland peace treaty that happened in real life, uh, that you know, like um, uh, I think it was the year before. I think it was '97 or earlier in '98. Like no, I think it was '97 was the Good uh, Friday uh, peace agreement, yeah. which um, led to the you know like putting down of arms of the two sides. Or in North Northern Ireland, the the UVF being the Protestant terrorism group and the IRA uh, being the the Catholic one, and, and you know this this kind of uh, agreement, this peace treaty agreement, and um, so yes, so this movie just tacks this on at the end. And by the way, uh, yep, it was it was Sam and Vincent. They made that happen. Good Friday peace agreement well done <laughs> it feels real tacked on yeah 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 
Now, the, even the, so the final scene, it's weird because it's giving you this whole information and it seems like you see um, Sam's contact pull up in the car and he looks into the diner and there's Sam and Vincent and they're talking and it, the kind of news broadcast is still going on and you think, okay, so that's how it's going to end. You're going to see them talking and then they're going to go their separate ways. Like that would kind of make sense, I guess, in a way, because you're not actually hearing what they're saying or whatever. But then it basically then reiterates, I guess, what they would have said. So it, it it's kind of odd. And it, I don't know if it's the cutting necessarily, but just the way that it's the scene is displayed. What? Well, yeah, it's Sam and Vincent, and they're basically, yeah. Yeah, they re edited the ending. Apparently the original, so like, you know, um, Sam says to Vincent, like, um, well, I wonder if she's going to appear kind of thing, meaning meaning Deirdre. Um, so in the original yeah. ending, Deirdre does appear outside the doors of the cafe and is considering uh, going in, but is then uh, at the kind of door of the cafe um, abducted. Uh, by the IRA, IRA um, presumably, you know, murdered off screen. Um, but apparently um, test audiences really hated that ending um, and didn't want the character of Deirdre to, um, to die. So they, um, they cut that out of the movie. Okay. Um, but that is the original ending. And apparently there is that makes a special sense. edition yeah. that has that ending on it. I don't know if the Blu-ray you have um, has like a, uh, that's one of the deleted scenes. Um, but apparently there is one of the, uh, you know, special editions that does have that original ending as, you know, one of the, one of the deleted scenes or whatever. And it is the ending that Frankenheimer wanted, but like he, he went with like, because the test audiences hated it so much, he agreed with the studio that like they they would have to go with something else, and that's what they what that what they go they go with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense because it feels a little awkward. But mm. yeah, it's basically them him saying, "Well, I can't pay for the the bill because of my arm, you know, because he has a cast or that he's shot in it, so he has a sling, Sam, which is a pretty good way to get out of paying." Film, yeah but, i can't reach into um, my wallet because this yeah. one art like i mean the other arm that's working don't don't care about that um you know like uh, you could have put your wallet in another pocket no 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 i really need yeah. this this one arm i always put it in that pocket so it just it really fucks it up uh so um yeah that's that so you're gonna have to pay sorry about that or not yeah. Uh, so so yeah. So so Vincent, uh, he, he's he he pays he pays the bill. I must say though that this film ends. Yeah, that... This film ends perfectly, like because all the questions we've asked yeah. about the logic of some of these double crosses, the logic of the lack of spycraft used um, throughout the movie. Uh, for most of the movie, uh, by most of the characters who sporadically use Spycraft, the the lack of police presence in the film, right? That's all swept under the carpet by this final quote. So the movie ends with a narration from John Renault um, as as the character Vincent, who says the following: 
No questions, no answers. That's the business we're in. You accept it and move on. Maybe that is lesson number three, which is basically like, see all those questions you have about the film? Fuck off, we're not going to answer. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how it felt. Because, well, it even has him, like he's asking Sam what was finally in the box, and Sam says he doesn't know. And, you know, there's stuff like that within their little conversation. And even kind of, you know, what Sam is actually doing or... You know, that they're saying their goodbyes, but then there's also the I'll be seeing you around, type, you know, it, it's very, it goes back and forth, even within that little, what, maybe two minutes of them chatting with each other, less than yeah. that. <laughs> and then, um, yeah. Yeah. And it shows, I mean, it is, it kind of, that final quote is very much kind of like, you want more details? Nah, you can fuck off. Yeah. No, I agree completely. Yeah. <laughs> But it's it's perfect because, you know, as we've discussed, this movie's real title is Undisclosed Reasons. We don't need the reasons. Yeah. We just need to enjoy the entertainment of everything that's going on. Yeah. Which it is it is very entertaining. It does it is tense and it keeps you kinda on the edge of your seat. So I'll give it all of that. It's just and I think watching it just on our own, you can kind of let that stuff go more i think for the sake of you know obviously this podcast then all the questions become like, yeah oh, i suppose because we're taking it, notes like, and and like um yeah we're, we're kind of watching it with a, a closer eye or whatever those questions come to mind more readily uh but yeah wait what you say you know if, if you i if i was just watching it myself you know like um I'd have some of those questions, but maybe uh, not so many. And um, yeah, you can kind of brush them under the carpet because everything else is so well played. Like, it's a great cast. Everybody plays their role really well. You know, you know, from Robert De Niro to Sean Bean, Stellan Skarsgård, John Renault, uh, Natasha Macalon, uh, Jonathan Price. You, they all play their roles real well. The dialogue is real snappy. The cinematography looks yeah. beautiful. The stunts are completely fucking nuts, as we've talked about. Uh, Frankenheimer's directions, real tight. You know, like, uh, you know, it's, it's real good. There's uh, a lot, a lot of pussies here. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's an excellent movie and a movie that probably could have been an all-time classic with a few tweaks here and there with the kind of uh, shaggy dogness of the plot, you know, but, um, you know, but I, I still can't complain too much because, like, um, I still really like this yeah, movie. Yeah, I agree. But that's it. We have got to the end of Ronan. Uh, but as always, that is just our thoughts on the movie. Please do give us your thoughts. Uh, contact us. Um, hit us up on our Twitter at 90s underscore all um you know like uh yeah or you know just um leave us a review tell us tell us your your opinions in a review and if you can make those reviews uh five stars that would be grand because as i may have mentioned on the podcast before anything less than five stars means that algorithm will think we are terrible 
Um, so if you have a review that you want to write that is less than five stars, please refrain from that and just move on with your day. Uh, but that is pretty much all for me. Um, is there anything you want to say before we head on out, Craig? No, it's, it's a lot of fun, especially for this Stallone season. And then having, obviously, the Ronin bonus, it was it really kind of had a upswing versus the Seagal one where it went downhill. <laughs> it, it started like you you missed out the best episodes in the Seagal one. And you came like mid season and it was just all down. It was just all yeah. downhill. Yeah, there was more peaks and troughs with uh, uh, Stallone. Yeah. Um, but um, yes, uh, that that is going to be us. Um, much like uh, season one, we will now take a four week break. Uh, but uh, you know, like it, it'll, it'll go by quick. Don't don't worry. It's only four weeks, and then after the four weeks are up, we will return with season three, when we will be talking about the action films of Kurt Russell. Uh, so. I hope you all look forward to checking out that. We will return starting with the movie uh, Backdraft and then we will talk about the rest of Kurt Ruckel's action filmography in the 90s. So we look forward to seeing you all again then. But until then, see ya. <laughs>